Masechet Ketubot Afkof Gimel. The Mishnah mentioned the case where a man marries a woman and she has a daughter already, and he agrees to feed the daughter for five years. They get divorced, and she makes the same deal with the second husband. Uh, so in that case, Loyum Rushinahem, both husbands can't come together and say, "Listen, we'll share the burden. I'll pay half. I'll pay half, and we together will support and feed the feed the uh, the the stepdaughter." No, each one independently agreed, and so even though they're not going to both give actual food because how much can one person eat uh, but one of them will give food and one of them will have to give money equivalent of what he what she would eat all right we're going to use this case to uh, attempt a proof at a similar case a man owned a millstone and the owner of the millstone rented it out to his friend, so his friend could make tehine, or uh, 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 to grind things. Uh, the word tehine means that because it comes from ground sesame seeds. Um, so okay, so he rents it out uh, for use, so, uh, and uh, and he would be- get paid. The idea is that uh, the renter would not pay in cash, but rather would pay with labor and would grind some uh, grain for the owner of the mill. And so that was a fair deal. Here, you get to use my mill for uh, 10 hours, and for a couple of those hours, you'll uh, grind my grains, and that way, it's an even exchange. But the owner of the mill got rich, and he was able to purchase a new, bigger mill, and a donkey that could pull this nice, big mill, and so now, he could, he could, um, he, uh, it was easy for him to uh, grind his own grain with his donkey, and so he didn't need the renter to do the labor for him. So now the owner of the mill wants to change the um, the details of their deal in the middle of the of the of the period that they agreed to. So the owner of the millstone says to the renter, "Until now, um, I, you were grinding for me, right? I was grinding my wheat with you, and you were paying me through that labor. But now I don't need your services anymore. So now pay me rent." But the renter said, "No, I don't. I don't have extra cash to just give you. This was a good deal for me because I don't have extra cash. I have extra time, so I don't mind doing the the, the milling by hand for you. Um, so I'll continue paying you as we agreed uh, with uh, with labor, but not with money. So this is the disagreement, and they came to Ravina to decide." So Ravina says, oh, I think uh, even though the Mishnah doesn't talk about this exact case, I'm going to make an analogy to our Mishnah, where uh, the circumstances have changed in this case. Both of them obligated them, um, themselves to pay food, actual food, to the stepdaughter, but now that things changed, uh, they both have to give her something, but one can give her food, and the other one has to pay her cash. And therefore, so too here, the circumstances have changed, and now the owner of the mill no already has a, uh, a means to, to do his labor, to grind his wheat, and uh, he now he doesn't need that labor anymore, but he does want cash. So he thought that, yes, the renter will from now on have to pay cash. That's what Avina was thinking. Avira said to him, "Wait, this, these are cases are not the same." With the stepdaughter, she has one stomach. Does she have two stomachs? How much can one person eat? So it makes sense that you're not going to give her twice the amount of food. So one person. One of the um, husbands will have to give her cash. So there, the circumstances change. Whereas here, the renter can say to the owner of the mill, listen, I'm gonna, I want to continue grinding for you, and you have no loss because you can use your nice big uh, donkey, n- nice big uh, mill and the donkey to grind and sell, or grind and store for later. So you can still use yours and get profit, so you'll get cash from doing that, and I will continue the same thing. And so, in other words, a person can't eat twice as much, twice as much 
but a person in their business can uh, can benefit from the uh, twice as much power to grind because they can make make money from that. And so the renter is different. Uh, so we cannot learn from our Mishnah to the case of the renter. The renter can still uh, give labor. However, However, we only say that the renter can continue uh, doing labor if he has no other grinding to do on that millstone. In other words, it's going, uh, he's just going to, if he doesn't do the grinding for the owner of the millstone, then it's just, he's just going to be doing nothing with it. And he has no other, uh, he has no other customers, for example, or other wheat that he needs to grind that he could use it and be busy with the mill anyway. Um, so then he can demand from the owner to keep the same status. And listen, listen, I have no other use for this. I, I grind my own mill. I grind my own wheat for eight hours. The other two hours, I have nothing else to grind. I have no other customers. And so I'm depending on the using it for that time to grind your wheat, Mr. Owner. And that's how I pay. In that case, they can continue the same deal. However, if the renter does have other grinding that he can do uh, with the grindstone, he can uh, offer the, the, his services to other people, then they will pay money for the rental. Then we say you have to pay the rent because um, this is otherwise it's called midat sedom. Midat sedom is if um, if um, if you can benefit from something that I have and I lose nothing from it, you know, I have a half a sandwich, I'm not eating anyway, I'm about to throw it out, and you say, hey, you know, can I can I have it? I said, well, I'm going to make you pay for it. Well, I wasn't, you know, I was throwing it out anyway, so I wasn't losing, and now I'm going to make you pay for it. That's a, that's a midah of sedom. And so this guy, he, the renter, he's not losing out if he has other customers and he can go and use it profitably during that time. So if, if the renter's not losing out and he can get cash and pay cash, then he must do that. Um, uh, otherwise, that, otherwise, that's midot sedom. If he does not have other customers, does not have other things to, to, to um, uh, grind and he's going to lose out, then we say you can continue paying in labor and the owner uh, of the mill has to agree to that. Okay, next Mishnah, So part of the stipulation of a Ketubah is that after the husband dies, the estate has to take care of the widow. And that includes not only food, but also uh, a place to live. And a place to live is not any random place. The widow can say, I don't want to leave my husband's home, the place that we were living together this whole time, even though that home is going to be inherited by the sons. Uh, nevertheless, the sons have to allow for their be either mother or stepmother to whoever the widow is to remain in the house and they cannot say go to your father's house and we will sustain you there we'll send the food over there we'll send you what you need there but we're, we're kicking you out of the house that you lived in no they don't do that they can't they don't have a right to do that rather they have to sustain her and they have to give her living quarters befitting her dignity within the house they have to give her their her own uh, private area that um, is uh, accordance with what she would expect and what she's used to. If she says, I want to go to my father's house and I want to stay in my father's house, she doesn't want to stay, remain in the house that she was living in with her husband, but she wants to go back to where she grew up. Then the, uh, she loses her rights to sustenance. The, and the heirs can tell her, if you are living here in our house, the house of our father, where you also lived, then we'll give you sustenance, right? Because we put out dinner every night anyway. And so you'll join us here. And so that's easy for us. But if you're not with us, then we don't, do not have an obligation to sustain you. And they do have a right to say that. Unless she has a good reason. If she says, I'm young and you're also young. Uh, for example, the father um, had children from one wife and then uh, got divorced and then he married a younger woman. So uh, it could be that this uh, stepmother is uh, relatively young and maybe the uh, these uh, sons are also um, a, a single 
and uh, and and young and so it would be inappropriate for them to be living together in that case she has a right to say i'm going and living in my father's house and they do have to sustain her there all right gemara tenor banan mishtameshet bemador kederach shemishtameshet behaye baala that is elaborating on the mishnah uh, that says when she that's uh, when it says that she, the widow has a right to remain in her in the house of her husband it means that she can also use it in the same way that she used it in her uh during her 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 lifetime uh, they can't kick her out and put her in the basement um and she has use of the slaves and maid servants in the house as she did when her husband was alive she can use the pillows and sheets the same way she did when her husband was alive the heirs can't tell her well no now you have to you know use the cheap sheets she uses the fancy uh, gold and the silverware as she did when her husband was alive because that's what it says, a stipulation in the Ketubah, that you will reside in my house, be sustained from my property all the days that you live as a widow. So that means sustained in a in the regular, normal way that she was used to when he was alive. There is an exception where the heiress can kick her out. Since it says you can live in my house, it doesn't say you can live in my hut. So if uh, the... The residence is just a, a small hut, just a you know a one uh, bedroom uh, studio apartment, and there's not going to be enough room for the heirs and the widow uh, to all be there together. It's too small. Then the heirs can say, "Sorry, this is too small, and you cannot live here." They do have a right to say that. If the heirs try to sell the home of their father, where their step, their their uh, the where the widow lives, uh, that sale is invalid they do not have a right to sell it the um uh the widow has rights to it she has a, a lien on that property and that's why she gets to live there question why is this case different from this other statement of Rabbi Yochanan where it's talking about orphans who went and sold uh, they they um, they quickly sold the their inheritance um, and even though there are not enough um, not enough money to go around we're talking about a case where there are boys and girls so in that case Although boys inherit, the girls get first rights to be sustained by the um, by the uh, by the property, and so therefore, if there's insufficient funds to take care of both, then only the girls will get the money. And in this case, however, if the orphans go and quickly sell the property of their father before the betin gets a chance to extract it from them and give it to the girls, that sale is valid. So why? How come when the uh, orphans sell the land the but and instead of and not uh, before the 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 widow gets a chance to take it uh, the sale is invalid but when the orphans sell it before their sisters get or daughter the daughters of the deceased get a chance to take it it's uh, it is valid what's the difference and the answer is in the case of the sons and daughters orphans um, there the daughters do not have a lien on the property from the, when they are alive it's only after the father dies then it goes as an inheritance to the sons and the sons have to give it to the daughters so in the meantime it does in fact go to the sons there's no lien on it so at that point before it's transferred the sons if the sons sell it it's a valid sale whereas in this case with the wife or uh, the widow the widow has a lien on his on her husband's property while she while they are alive while the husband is alive and therefore when he dies she already has a lien and if they try to sell it the sale is invalid that makes sense says we have a uh, a tradition that if the home of a widow falls uh then the heirs do not have a responsibility to to rebuild it right they do have a responsibility to allow her to live in that home but if it falls they don't have to spend money and rebuild it 
Abaya said this as a tradition, and we have a Braita as well. Again, same thing, they don't have to build it. Furthermore, if she says, leave it there, I'll rebuild it from my own funds, we don't listen to her. After all, the land and the, and the building material, you know, the, the bricks that were, were used and wood, whatever, that fell down, they wouldn't throw it out. They would use those, they would reuse those same building materials. So even if she says, listen, leave everything there, I'll pay for the rebuilding and I'm going to want to continue living there. They don't have to. They don't have to allow her. She has a right to live in the home of her husband. But if there's no home there, then that's it. The heirs can take it. Question. Let's say it didn't fall down yet, but it was kind of shaky. And the widow goes and repairs it. It would have fallen down had she not repaired it, but she put she repaired it. So can she stay? Or do we say, no, it was not gonna it was gonna fall down. It would have been in ruins, and then the heirs could have take, taken it. Take oh, we leave that question standing. Well, kind of like this. Home is also still standing, uh, just barely. All right, Amra Efshi. If she says, "I don't want to uh, move uh, from my father's house. I wanna, I wanna live with my father and my my the house that I grew up in. Grew up in. In that case, the heirs do not have to give her food." Question. Oh, why? Let her live. Let her um, live there. And and uh, he, uh, they should give her support, just like if she was living in their husband's house. Like, what's the difference? Why not give send the food to her father's house? The reason is, um, as as we're going to see in this following statement. So this supports the statement of Rav Huna that there's blessing in the house of uh, in its abundance. When there's a lot of people living in a house, then there's their blessing comes to the house. Right? Somehow, uh, if you have ten people living in the house. The expenses get absorbed. It doesn't cost 10 times as much of this as if there's one person in the house. Um, you buy things in bulk, everybody shares, and it works out. So the point here is that if she is living in the widows, living in the house with the heirs, they can more easily take care of her. It's just one more person in the house, so the expenses are only a little bit more. Whereas if they're going to have to go and send food and other uh, items that she needs, there, right, then it's going to cost a lot more. So it, it does make a difference uh, to them. Okay, question. So how about if they make a deal and they she lives in her father's house and they will send her the amount that it would cost them had she stayed, right? They can estimate. Listen, we have nine people living in the house. For you, the widow, they could t tell her to live in the house would just be a tenth person. How much more would that be in our expenses? It wouldn't be, uh, it'd only be a few percent more. Instead of having to pay $100 a day, we would really only have to pay $50 a day to sustain you if you were here. If so, then they can send that fifty dollars to the um, to the to the uh, uh, to her in her father's house. So how about that? Because now the orphans aren't losing anything, and the answer is Yes, indeed, they could. They can can make that deal, and uh, that would be uh, within uh, within the rights of both uh, of both parties. Avuna reflects on the way the sages teach things that when they want to teach a halacha they don't simply teach the halacha they also give good advice they say things about blessings about wealth and about healing. Uh, how so? We just said over here even though it was a technical halacha about um, how much expenses are when someone's living if you're taking care of them in your own home as opposed to when they're going somewhere else. Uh, and nevertheless, they say in a, they don't just say it in a technical way. They say it as a, such a nice thing, right? There's beracha with lots of people in the house. So that's what we already said. Now the next one, Oshe Ditnan, this is a Mishnah in Baba Mochir Perot if so I'm buying um, uh, uh, produce from you, if I pull the produce, right, if I actually uh, move it, then the buyer, that's an active acquisition by pulling it. Even if I didn't measure it out, still, it's mine and I can't renege on the deal. But if it was weighed, usually it's the seller that does the weighing. 
Um, you have to imagine like an old uh, Western grocery store where there's a, you know, the counter and the seller is doing the weighing behind the counter there. And so if the seller um, weighs everything out, but the buyer did not pull it, um, it did not yet pick it up, then it's not, uh, the sale did not go through. So this could be annoying for the seller because the seller can do all this work, you know, measure everything out, prepare everything. And the buyer says, ah, I changed my mind. I don't want it. And the seller has no recourse. So, but if the seller is smart, he can rent out that area, right? The area on the counter where, uh, where they're putting everything aside. So, okay, here, this is yours. This is yours and put it in that area. So the buyer, uh, does acquire it, although he's not pulling it, he acquires it because it's in his space because he rented he rented it out. Right, so the seller said, "Listen, here's your space. I'm renting it to you. Anything I put down there, you already own, and therefore you can't renege." So again, this is a halacha, but it teaches also good advice, not just that. Okay, no lokana. It tells uh, the seller what to do so he can uh, be rich. Mishnah in Pesachim says you should not chew wheat and put it on a wound on Pesach. I guess this was if on their foot. If they had a, a wound, they could put some uh, wheat on it and that would be uh, beneficial. Uh, but that's fine to do all year round, but not on Pesach. Um, a wound, I guess it could be anywhere. This would be like a, like a Band-Aid. Instead of putting this dough item as, instead of a Band-Aid, you could do that all year round, but don't do that on Pesach because if you leave this dough there, it's going to become hametz, and um, and uh, it's it's dough, it's edible. So therefore, find something else to do on Pesach. So you see how the rabbis also give you advice about how to um, follow halacha and also have healing. Teno rabanan peshat petirato sharbi amar lebanai anisarich. Okay, now we have a very important story about the death of the Nasi. When he was dying on his deathbed, he said, I need my sons here. Call them in. Call them in. He told them some uh, directives. Number one, I want you to be careful with, by, to honor your mother. The Gemara is going to ask, why does he have to say that? Uh, doesn't everybody have to honor their mother? And second, I want my lamp should be lit where I usually like it. I want the table to be set as it usually is when I'm there. I want my my table setting there. Mitate musad bimkoma. I want my bed to be arranged to be made in its place. Yosef Haifani Shimon Efrati Hem Shimeshuni Behayai Hem Yeshameshuni Bemoti. And furthermore, these two gentlemen, Yosef and Shimon, they served me while I was alive, and I want them to serve me while I after I die, which sounds like he wants them to be the ones that will arrange for his burial. Now we're going to analyze each statement. Hold on, Torah already says you have to honor your father and your mother. Why would you have to tell them to follow a simple law in the Torah? And so is Eshet Av Havai. No, she, that was his father's, their father's wife. It was their stepmother, even though he said Imechem. Uh, it was actually a stepmother. And so that's why he said, even though she's not your biological mother, nevertheless, I want you to honor her. Hold on. That does, still doesn't answer the question. Honoring a stepmother is also a Doraita law, since it has the extra word et, comes to include the a stepmother and the etimecha comes to include uh, a stepfather. It's interesting that it calls it a doraita, even though we're learning it from a derasha. The vav of ve etimecha comes to include one's older brother, who can be in a family like a father figure. So the rabbi wouldn't have to tell his sons that either. They would know that this is. They would know this derasha and know that this is already a law that's commanded. In the Torah, that they have to honor their stepmother. So, this is only true that a, a man, a person has to honor their stepmother when their father is alive. Um, it's a kind of indirect, it's a way of showing honor to the father by showing honor to the father's wife. But after the father dies, then there's no mitzvah doraita anymore to give honor, to special honor to the stepmother. And that's what Abiyu Nasi said. Listen, even though after, even after I die, although there's no technical mitzvah, I want you to afford her uh, 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 same honor as you have done. Why does he want his lamp and his table and his bed all set? 
Maitama Kobeshim Because every uh, Shabbat Eve, every Friday uh, night, Rabbi uh, Yudanasi is going to come in a soul, a state of his soul, a ghost-like uh, spirit is going to come and visit the house, and he wants everything there and set up as usual, so he can feel at home. Okay. Hahu Beshimsha Atai Shababta Kakarya Ababa. So it happened to be that one Shabbat evening a neighbor came and she called and knocked on the door uh, for whatever reason. Amra Amete Shetiku Tribiatev. The maidservant says, Be quiet, Rebuta uh, is sitting here, don't disturb him. Now the neighbor knew that Rebuta Nasi died. And so now uh, the, the maidservant is revealing this, uh, this, uh, I, this fact that he's coming and visiting um, as just his soul. Kevande Shama Rebuta Nasi heard the maidservant reveal this. Shubloata, he never came back to the house again in order not to cast aspersions on earlier righteous people if people hear this wow the Nasi is so great he was able to come home and visit every Friday night um, after his death well is that because he's so great what about that other rabbi he was also great but he never does he go visit no he doesn't get get to visit his family that guy doesn't get to visit his family after he died and so they're gonna belittle the other sages who don't have this uh, benefit and so he said he stopped coming. Uh, so that people won't uh, won't uh, put him above the other sages. All right, interesting story. Yosef Hanefi, Chefani, Shimon Efrati, When he said that these two uh, people should serve him um, after uh, in his death, like they did in his life, they thought. Uh, that they were talking, Biodansi was talking about this world, that they would, these two people would attend to his death and bury him, uh, which is an honor. But, but while the Biodansi is on his deathbed, these two people, Yosef and Shimon, they themselves died before and they said that we understood. Oh, he doesn't mean in this world. It says they will serve him in the next world. They served him in this world. In the next world, he also wants his attendants to take care of him there. So they died uh, so they, they could accompany him, the Biodanasi, to the next world. How come he, he said it in this way? That was kind of cryptic because he didn't want people to say to think that there was something wrong with these two these two people, Yosef and Shimon, um, and the only reason they really they deserve death on their own. But the only reason they stayed alive is for the merit of the bee um, that benefited them. He don't want people to think that, so that's why he explained that no, they served me in their life and did such a good job, and they're righteous. But I need them. I want them to to serve me uh, after I die. And so he explained that no one should think that there's anything wrong with them, that they died at this time. Okay, Okay, after the Biyudanasi uh, gave his last will to his sons, he called in the sages. He had something to say to them. Number one, I don't want eulogies in small towns. We'll explain why. And I want you to reconvene study sessions after 30 days. In other words, all the, the students are going to stop learning to mourn him for 30 days. After 30 days, then go back. Shimon beni Chacham, Gamliel beni Nasi, Hanina bar Chama, Barosh. He says, I want my son Shimon to be uh, the Chacham, but uh, I want Gamliel to be the Nasi. The Nasi is the highest uh, highest uh, uh, position. That was, It's a high political and religious position. It's the person who was the uh, in charge of the whole community, liaison to the Roman government. And so Gamliel is going to be the Nasi, and Shimon is going to be the secondary, will be Chacham, and Hanina Bar Chama will be the head of the yeshiva. Okay, let's analyze what he said. How come he didn't want to get uh, buried and uh, be uh, eulogized in small towns? But, uh, so they thought he didn't want people to be troubled that they would have to go into the small towns. If they live in, in little villages and farms, then everybody would have to stop work and go into the into the town. So he was being humble and saying, no, don't bother. Don't, don't uh, bother people to come into the small towns. That's what they thought. 
כיוון דחזית הכסף די בכרכים, וכתוב כולי עמא, but then they saw what actually happened is, because they were not eulogizing in the small towns, everyone from the villages and the small towns came to the large cities, and they were all um, eulogizing him in the large cities. אמרו שמאמינה משום יקרהו דקמה, then they understood it was actually because of uh, the honor that was due to him, If people had stayed in the small towns, then they wouldn't have had the big gatherings in the big towns. So when you have a lot of people, everyone coming from all over into the big towns, that's a much more honorable and fitting way to eulogize the, the Nasi of the generation. When he said, go back to the study sessions after 30 days, why? Why did he limit it? I'm not greater than Moshe. They cried for Moshe 30 days. Which means 30 days they eulogized Moshe day and night. Um, so 30 days day and night but uh, from then on they would either eulogize during the day and study Torah at night or they would eulogize at night and study Torah during the day and they did that for 12 months uh, they went on so that was a gradual first 30 days of intense and then one year of less intense mourning so on that day that of the funeral a voice a divine voice came out a divine echo and said anyone who was at the funeral of the bee and showed him honor is invited to come to the world to, is invited to the world to come because by even showing honor to a great sage, that itself is a, an amazing, a wonderful deed worthy of Olam Haba. Now, there was some, a, laundry, a launderer, who usually is a, a simple, probably not a learned person. This launderer would come to the Bihudnasi every day and visit him and give him honor. He was a devoted uh, follower of the Bihudnasi every day, except that day of the funeral, he didn't come. For whatever reason, he, he wasn't able to come. When he heard this, this bat call, he was so upset that, that every day I went to visit him, this one day that I, would, I could have gone to Olam Haba, I missed that day. He was so upset. He went up to the roof and he fell off and he died. He committed suicide. The divine echo said that launder also is destined for the world to come. This is a very interesting and important uh, story because in general, suicide is is prohibited. And uh, if one commits suicide, there's all kinds of laws that they can't be eulogized, they can't be buried in the same place as others. Um, but uh, nowadays, psychological insight says most of the time, maybe all the time, if someone does uh, do, such a act, do such an act, it means because they are in great sorrow, they're out of their mind, they're not, doing, they're not acting in sanity and ration, rationally, and therefore they should not, not be held accountable uh, and punished for their actions. And so this uh, story here actually would be a good source to support the idea that even if one commits suicide, if they do so, out of this kind of great anguish, then they, um, they uh, do not deserve that kind of punishment that normally that uh, this uh, sin would deserve. Okay, Shimon Beni Chacham, Maika Amar. Hachika Amar, Afapisha Shimon Beni Chacham, Gamaliel Beni Nasi. So he says Shimon will be, uh, will be the, the Chacham. So what, what is, why is he saying this? Uh, what he means is that even though Shimon uh, is Chacham, Gamliel is a Nasi. So he was, he was contrasting the two. Why, have, why do you say Shimon Beni is a Chacham? Okay, he's a Chacham, right? No, he wants to say, Shimon, I want to be clear, is not going to be the Nasi. Gamliel will be the Nasi. Now, Amar Levi Sericha Lememar, the idea is that uh, Shimon seems to have been more well read, and nevertheless, Gamliel is going to be the Nasi. Amar Levi Sericha Lememar, Levi says, what, does he even need to say that? Gamliel, after all, is the oldest, and so the oldest is going to be the Nasi, naturally. Amar Levi Shimon Barabi, Sericha Lach, Ulamit Laatach, 
Rabbi Shimon about to be responds sharply to Levi. He says, who needs you and your limp? Levi had a limp. And so he's kind of making fun of him and saying, you know, what, what are you doing uh, asking questions about a Biudan Nasi? Like, why did Biudan Nasi have to say this? Even if he didn't say that Gamliel's a Nasi, would have been the Nasi because he's the oldest. So Rabbi Shimon is, uh, is uh, challenging Levi. Now we come and say, why, why is Rabbi, what's Rabbi Shimon about to be's problem? Um, this, Levi is asking actually a good question. Pasuk says that Yehoshaphat, after he died, he gave the kingdom over to Yehoram because he was the firstborn. So you see, the firstborn gets the kingship, and the Nasi is kind of like a king. He's the political authority of the Jewish people in, in Israel. And so it actually makes very, very much sense that they would automatically go to the firstborn. So we actually support Levi's question. Uh, so we explain. So the idea is the reason why the Biudanasi had to say something is because Gamliel, uh, because is because here in this uh, source Yehoram was equal, was uh, worthy of filling his father's place. Uh, so that automatically went to him. But uh, Rabban Gamliel was not worthy of filling his father's place. He was great, but not as great as his father. And so therefore, one might have in fact thought that maybe he shouldn't be the next one. And uh, that's why he had to say. So that's why the Bishimon was challenging Levi, right? Uh, Levi, don't question the Biodanas. He had a very good reason. It's not necessarily an automatic that's going to go from father to the firstborn son. Uh, the firstborn, if the firstborn son is not worthy, then it won't go to him. Okay, so now we ask, well, in fact, if the Gamliel was not worthy, why did he become the Nasi? So why did he uh, appoint his firstborn? It's true that he did not, uh, he was not fit as fitting uh, as his father's in wisdom and knowledge, but in in fear of sin, he was, he did uh, fill the place of his fathers. And so this is an important lesson that Yedatret is uh, the number one criteria, even more than Chokhmah. Okay, next, Hanina Bar Chama Yeshev Barosh. Vidansi says that Hanina Bar Chama is going to be the Rosh Yeshiva. Now, the story goes on. Even Rabbi appointed Hanina did not accept the position because there was another sage, Rabbi Afes, who was older than him by two and a half years. And so he should get it first. So sure enough, Rabbi Afes became the Rosh Yeshiva first. Um, and after a while, he died. And then Rabbi Hanina did, in fact, become Rosh Yeshiva. Now, in the meantime, when Rabbi Afes was the Rosh Hashiva, okay, Hanina is not going to be Rosh Hashiva, but he's also not going to be sit as a student of Rabbi Afes. They're almost colleagues, so he's not going to sit in the classroom. So instead, Rabbi Hanina was sitting outside on this learning on his own. Levi, who was also an advanced uh, uh, sage, sat outside and they studied together, Levi and Rabbi Hanina, while Rabbi Afes was the um, was the uh, the Rosh Hashiva. Now later, once Rabbi Afes died, then Rabbi Chayna became the Rosh Hashiva. Now Levi is not going to be the student of Chanina, so he's not going to enter the classroom, and there's no one else to for him to study outside with. And so he left Israel and he went to Babel to go and study there. And this explains the story that um, that was told to Rav, there's a great person uh, coming to Nehardea and he's limping. They didn't, t- they didn't tell him who it was, but they gave him a hint. Number one, he's limping. And furthermore, he says that a taya- a, a wearing a tiara for a woman is permitted on Shabbat, it's not considered carrying. Often if you if you wear a fancy uh, some jewelry, uh, we worry that the person is going to take off the jewelry in the public domain to show off their friend. But who wears a tiara? Only very important women. And what important women are not going to take it off to show their friend. 
because they don't need to impress anyone. And so therefore, it's permitted for a woman to wear a tiara on Shabbat in the public domain. This is the halacha that uh, Levi brought with him. Okay, Ladav heard that, and just based on those two hints, Amar, he says, oh, now if Levi's coming here, I can infer, uh, like a Talmudic surya, he can figure out what happened. It must be that Rabbi Afes died. And now Rabbi Chayna became the Rosh Yeshiva. Now Levi had no chavruta outside, and so that's why he came, right? Rav understood all of the uh, relations uh, uh, going on and uh, immediately put all this together. Okay, so now we ask, hold on, how did he know that Rabbi Afes is the one that died? Maybe Rabbi Chanina died. Um, and remained And the problem is that Rabiafes is, is the Rosh Hashiva. Now outside, Rabbi uh, Chanina died. Now Levi has no chevruta. How do you know that Rabiafes is the one that died, and that Rabbi Chanina became Rosh Hashiva? Vekata maybe became because he lost his chevruta, not because Rabbi Afes died. We have a couple of ways that Rav could have known this. Number one, it could be that Levi was in fact subordinate to Rabbi Afes. And so if Rabbi Chanina is the one that had died, then Levi would have went inside and been uh, stood at the feet and learn from Rabbi Afes. The only reason he was outside is to keep Rabbi Chanina company, but he wouldn't, uh, if he would otherwise have studied under Rabbi Afes and not come to Babel. That's one way he could have known. Or, because he knew that Rabbi predicted that Chanina would be the Rosh Hashiva, so it's impossible that he would not become Rosh Hashiva. It can't be that only Rabbi Afes would be Rosh Hashiva and Rabbi Chanina would die while Rabbi Afes is the Rosh Hashiva and never get a chance, uh, since it says regarding righteous that you decree a thing and it is established by you. In other words, once a righteous person says something, it will be established, it will come true. If not now, then eventually. So that's how Rav knew that it must be Rabbi Afes died and Rabbi Chanina did in fact become Rosh Yeshiva. Another question. Um, wasn't Rabbi Chaya around at the time? How come the Rabbi Chaya wasn't? How come Rabbi Udanasi didn't appoint Rabbi Chaya? He was certainly greater than everyone. The answer is Nachtav had or he had already died before Rabbi Udanasi died. Wait a second. I saw the graveside of Udanasi and I cried over it. No, it must be the opposite. It was Rabbi Nasi who said, I saw the grave of Rabbi Chaya and cried over him. Didn't Rabbi Chaya once say that the day that Rabbi Nasi died, uh, Kedusha stopped? No, it was the opposite. Rabbi Yudha said that about Rabbi Chaya. Next, we have another challenge to the idea that Rabbi Chaya died before Rabbi Yudanasi. When Rabbi was sick on his deathbed, Rabbi Chaya came to visit him. So that shows that Rabbi was about to die and Rabbi Chaya was just fine. Uh, but we're going to quote the whole Baraita. So we saw Rabbi Yudanasi was crying. Rabbi Chaya says, Why are you crying? And he quotes a Braita, Met mitoch hasichok siman yafelo, mitoch habechi siman ralo. If someone dies while laughing, that's a good sign. While crying, that's a bad sign. So you shouldn't be crying. Other signs, panav lemala siman yafelo, panav lemata siman ralo. If his face is up, that's a good sign. Face is down, that's a bad sign. And it's kepav kelapea am siman yafelo, kelapav kelape kotel siman ralo. If he's facing the people, that's a good sign. If he's facing a wall, that's a bad sign when he dies. If he's greenish and pale, that's a bad sign. If he's, if he's yellow or ready, or ready, then that's a good sign. If someone dies on Erev Shabbat, Friday afternoon, Friday night, that's a good sign. 
But on Mosei Shabbat, Saturday night, that's a bad sign. If someone dies before Yom Kippur, that's a bad sign. However, um, at the after Yom Kippur, that is a good sign. Uh, if someone dies of intestinal problems, that is a good sign because, in fact, most righteous people die of intestinal disease. Um, maybe because um, it allows they can continue learning Torah even with that disease. It doesn't disfigure their uh, their outside body. So that's a, a, a better form of disease to die from. Okay, anyway, the point is that uh, he, he, it was Rabbi Chaya that came to visit Rabbi when Rabbi was dying. Uh, anyway, the answer, Rabbi's answer is that, oh, I'm crying because of Torah and Mitzvot, that I won't be able to fulfill. I love learning Torah, I love doing Mitzvot, and after I die, I won't be able to do that. Even though we did see before that he would come visit his house on the night of Shabbat, but he still, even though he visited, he was not able to receive, um, uh, to do, perform the Mitzvot. Okay, so we have a couple of answers. Maybe we have the order of people wrong. It was not Rabbi Chaya that visited Rabbi, but rather Rabbi Chaya was on his deathbed, and Rabbi came to visit him. And this conversation just reversed everything, and so in fact it was Rabbi Chaya that died first. Or, Or maybe... Uh, we can have, give a new answer. So all three challenges we just had, uh, we and each one we switched it around. You don't have to switch any of them around. Leave all of them uh, in the same direction. And uh, in fact, Rabbi Achia was alive uh, when Rabbi Yudanasi uh, died. And uh, so he would be could theoretically have chosen Rabbi Achia to be the next Rosh Hashiva. But Rabbi decided not to because Rabbi Achia was involved in very important mitzvot, as we're going to see in a second. And so Rabbi said, I don't want to hold him back from performing mitzvot. If I appoint him to be the Rosh, the, uh, the Nasi, then um, uh, the Rosh Hashiva, rather, uh, then he's going to be involved in running the yeshiva and he won't do all the good deeds that he's involved in now. So even though he, Rabbi Chia, was in fact greater than anybody and deserves it, deserved it the most, um, Rabbi did not appoint him so he could continue to do mitzvot. And we see the fact that Rabbi Chia did so many mitzvot from the following argument between Rabbi Chanina and Rabbi Chia. One time they were arguing about some halachic matter, and Rabbi Chanina said, you are, are you arguing with me? Don't you know who I am? I am so great that if the whole Torah would be forgotten from the people of Israel, I could figure it out on myself, on my own through analysis and derive all the halachot, everything that has been lost. All right, I know everything so well that even if you forget a whole bunch of things, I could figure out what it is. And so you should not be arguing with me. I know better what I'm talking about. But Rabbi Chia responded, I'm doing something better. I'm doing work to make sure that it won't be forgotten in the first place. Right? What's, the, what's better for it to not to be forgotten in the first place? Or how, let it be forgotten, but then restore it. No, what I'm doing is more important. How, how is he making sure that Torah will not be forgotten? First of all, I go uh, bring flax. I plant it. I grow it. I weave nets. And I make nets out of the flax. Then I go and trap deer. I kill the deer and I feed the meat, which is kosher, to orphans. All that he does actually to get the skin of the deer, and um, uh, and he goes and he writes, he makes scrolls from the skins of the deer. But on the way, he also does misvah of helping the poor. And then I go to a town. I go from town to town, all over the place. Uh, I go to a place that has no t- no teacher for children. And so the kids don't know anything. And I write each of the five books of the Torah for five children. I give it to them. I said, here, study this. And then I go from that also town. I get six kids that are sharp, good memory. And I teach each one of the six 
one of the sedarim of Mishnah. And to each one, I say, go and teach the Mishnah to your friend. Mishnah would be learned by heart. And so you see to be Chiyah, uh, what he would do to make sure Torah would not be forgotten, he would go and make scrolls. We could write Torah, go from town to town, give them a copy of the Torah, teach them the Mishnah by heart, so that these kids then would grow up and they would be the teachers. And now, you have, a, you have a learned community. Rabbi said, how great are the works of, of, of Rabbi, uh, of Rabbi Chia. And so that's why that work was more important than Rabbi Chia becoming the Rosh Yeshiva. Rabbi Shimon Rabbi, is his work even greater than you, than your work? Uh, that you're a Nasi? Yes. Right, going and making sure that there are schools in different towns and people that are knowledgeable to teach, that's even more important than being the Nasi. The son of Rabbi Yoseh asked him, Is Rabbi's work even greater than my father's work? Rabbi Yoseh, Male Hasve Shalom, Rabbi said, No, we're not going to say such a thing. Uh, such, we should not say such a thing. Right, we're not uh, here to put down the, uh, the the previous generations like Rabbi Yoseh. But if we're talking about people around now, who's doing the most important job? It's Rabbi Chaya over and above the Nasi, over and above the uh, Rosh Yeshiva. So this is a, really a beautiful Agadah, talking about the importance of elementary education. Okay, now to be Udanasi, back to his deathbed, he's calling in different people, and now he calls his youngest son. So, so Shimonski is going to be the Chacham, which actually sounds like it's a, some kind of official position, and so he gave him so the wisdom of how one should conduct himself as the Chacham. Then he calls in his eldest son, who's going to be the Nasi. And he teaches him, here's how you should be the patriarch. So it's when you're Nasi, you should um, be assertive. You should hold yourself high above others and put fear in your students. So you have to be very firm and you know and and instill awe in others we have a question no but in, in Tehilim it says he even a king honors those who fear god in other words even the nasi should have, should give um honor to others to people who fear hashem and so this uh, applies to Yehoshaphat the king good king that when he saw a uh, a sage he would stand up from his throne and hug and kiss the sage and say my teacher my teacher right uh, my master my master so you see that even a king should uh, show deference and honor to a Tamid Chacham. And so the same thing here, the Shunt and Nasi uh, uh, show deference and not be assertive and, and uh, um, have fear over students. And the answer is, It depends. If they're in private, then the Nasi, the king, should uh, give honor to the student. But in public, you have to make sure that the, the, the Nasi's authority is well known, and so he should not say those things in public. Okay, Tanya, Rabbi Mutal Basipori, Makom Muhan Lo Bebet Sha'arim. Now Rabbi is actually gonna uh, gonna die. Uh, the problem is he was lying in Sipori, that's where he was on his deathbed. Uh, but his place of burial was in Bet Sha'arim. See here is Sipori, and here is Bet Sha'arim. So they're gonna have to transfer him there. Wait a quite wait a second. Vatanya Sedik Sedik Tidof Sha'arim. We have another midrash that says you should always follow pursue justice and that means physically go and run to the highest court that's around and during the time of Rabbi that was in Bet Sha'arim so really Rabbi should have been sitting in Bet Sha'arim what was he doing in Sipori why was his deathbed in Sipori the answer is Rabbi Bet Sha'arim 
In fact, he did live in Bet Sharim. That's where he lived. That's where he worked. That's where his uh, Bet Betin was. Um, but when when he became halash, when he became sick, they brought him to Sipori. Because um, it's on a high altitude and the air is very is very good there, and so to try to get better, they brought him to Sipori. All right, we uh, is a little bit more about the the death of the bee on the next staff. Baruch Adonai Lolam. Amen. Amen.